You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. I recently had a, uh, earlier in the fall, had a little medical test done, and uh, it was a echocardiogram. I don't know if you've had that or know what that is, but it's essentially a sonogram, but they're not looking for a baby. Uh, they're looking at your heart. And uh, so, it, you know, it's not an overly intimidating thing or anything like that, uh, other than the fact they could find something that could drastically change the entire course of your life, I suppose. But uh, So that's something. But at any rate, um, you know, I don't know. We have some medical people in our church. I haven't really asked anybody about this, but I think on the first day of, like, X-ray imaging whatever school, I think on day one, they tell you, they teach you the poker face, right? So no matter what you see, you cannot react. If something's really great, you can't say, oh, hey, you got nothing to worry about. If something's really bad, you can't say, you know, it's nice knowing you, but uh, thank, thanks. You, you can't do that. You've got to have the poker face. And so uh, when I went in, I'm expecting this lady will have a poker face the entire time. And so she sets me up and gets going and puts the thing and starts uh, rubbing at my heart, you know, on the outside of my, where my heart is. And as soon as the heart, I can see it appear, as soon as it appears on her screen, she looks at the heart for just a second, and then she exclaims strongly, she exclaims, wow, these walls are so thin. And I'm thinking, where's the poker face? And I'm, I'm like envisioning like the walls of my heart breaking and blood seeping through. And, you know, I'm like, they're, how thin? Well, how thin are they? I don't even, is thin bad? I don't know. You're supposed to have thick walls, thin walls. I don't even know what this means. But it does not sound good because she has exclaimed, wow, these walls are so thin. And before I could say, any something, say anything, you know, I'm in utter horror. Before I could say anything, she pauses a second or two and then says, you can hear everything they're saying next door. You can hear everything they're saying next door. And so then I, I paused and I listened and all the nurses in the next room are yucking it up, laughing, talking. Meanwhile, this woman's about to give me a heart attack. Uh, the very thing I think she's trying to avoid. I'm about to get a heart attack here because she is exclaiming, the walls of your heart are so thin, but she didn't say heart, I just assumed. And so immediately when she gave me the context Immediately when she communicated this perspective that she's not talking about the interior of my body, she's talking about the walls that separate us from the nurses who are having a party next door. And a fresh perspective changed everything. I was able to relax after, I'm sure, skipping several beats and uh, be able to relax, and my test was uh, fine. So that's, that's the good news of that. And in many ways, Peter, as he is writing this letter and has been talking about suffering and preparing these people for suffering and engaging them in the midst of their suffering to let them know how to live out a life faithful to Christ in the midst of suffering. He has given them and will in the passage today a fresh perspective. In the passage today, he's going to help us to understand uh, a bit about why we suffer and what the purpose of suffering is. Now, to be clear, the Bible never gives us the exact reason for any particular suffering that we endure. But this passage does give us some general principles 
about why suffering happens in our lives and how we can respond, how we should respond uh, to our suffering as believers. It's going to give us a fresh perspective, and that really can change everything. And as we read this passage today, I recognize we're in different places in the room, uh, different seasons of our lives, but there's really only two seasons of life. You are either in the midst of suffering or you are preparing to suffer. Those are the two seasons in in life. Uh, And so this is going to be a word from this passage that will meet everyone. If you are in the middle of suffering, there are people in our church that are in the middle of really difficult grief and or physical suffering, emotional suffering, financial suffering, relational suffering, uh, all kinds of suffering. Some may say this is the worst period of my life, worst suffering in my life. There's others who say, man, life is going so great for me until I showed up at this church and we're talking about suffering. Don't ruin it all, you know. But there's others who say, life's going great for me right now. Um, and thank the Lord and rejoice in that um, and prepare because it won't always be. No, no life avoids uh, suffering at all. So let's read this passage um, and see what the Lord has to say to us from his holy word as he addresses the issue of suffering. Verses 12 through 19 of 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Really, I think there's three big ideas in this passage about suffering. And the first one is this, to expect suffering. Now, he doesn't say expect suffering, but in essence, he does. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So he says, don't be surprised by suffering. The first idea is expect suffering. But before we even look at that, look at the first word of the entire section. Beloved. Beloved. Addressing these Christians in Asia Minor in the first century who were being resisted for their faith, who were suffering for their faith, the first thing he says in this section to them is that you are loved. Beloved. That means to be loved. They are loved by God. Loved by Peter as well. But they are loved by God. And I believe this is the most important thing for you to know as a Christian in suffering, is that you're loved by God. There's no greater truth, really, for you to grasp when you're going through hard times, is that God loves me. That God is for me. Um, he, the reason that is, is because we can so easily be tempted to assess the love of God based on our circumstances. And so we look when things are going 
poorly, when things are difficult in our lives, we can make the false assumption, well, God is intentionally being distant from me. God doesn't love me. God's left me. God's mad at me. Uh, God's got other things to do. He's too busy to worry about my suffering. But to these suffering people, he says, oh, absolutely not. You are loved by God. And then he continues, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, he doesn't specifically tell us what this fiery trial is, but there's these clues, um, sort of Easter eggs, right? Throughout the entire letter, there are these clues about what's going on. So one is just a few verses up in verse 4, he said that the people around you are maligning you. So they won't participate in the same activities, not all the same activities that those around them do. And so because of that, they're being slandered, maligned, gossiped about. So that's going on, we know, from just a few verses up. And in the passage we just read, if you look at verse 14, he gives us another clue. If you are insulted for the name of Christ. So this is, this is kind of the suffering they're experiencing. These kind of little comments are found throughout the book, which tell us that they're not being martyred. This is not a time where Christians, there's a wholesale uh, government prohibition against Christianity where they are being martyred. That's later. Uh, not in the not-too-distant future from when this is written. But at this time, what they're experiencing is more verbal opposition, verbal pos- uh, pro- uh, persecution. Uh, they're being insulted. They're experiencing social rejection from their coworkers, their family, uh, because of their faith in Christ and the different lifestyle that they live, which is different than their culture. And so they are, they are being resisted. And so we, we could pick up some kind of clues, but I want to make this point that throughout First Peter, the language he uses for suffering is general. So he didn't write here, for instance, beloved, do not be surprised when you are persecuted for your faith. He didn't say that. He said trial, and he uses that kind of language throughout, trial, suffering. Uh, he uses this kind of descriptors to explain what they're going through. Now, he drops hints that there's this opposition, that they're being pushed to the margins, that they live on the margins. But it's an important point to note that the word trial here and, and uh, the, the sort of same family of words that mean the same thing that are used throughout the letter mean that it, it, this applies to broader topics of suffering. It's not just persecution for one's faith, resistance for one's faith. It's not just that. That's a big theme in the book. But I really believe any of the sufferings we have in life, we could say, God would say to us, do not be surprised at the fiery suffering that you are experiencing. God doesn't want us to be surprised. But the truth is, we need to read this verse because we are, often are surprised we often are surprised. We, we think that if I follow Jesus, if I obey him, if I do the right things he wants me to do, then surely God will ensure that everything goes well in my life. We tend to believe that. We may read the Bible a lot. We may read theology. We may understand what it means that God is sovereign. We may read and understand about grace, all these kinds of things. But in our heart of hearts, if we're honest, we'll admit that we view suffering as an intrusion. It's something that surprises us. It's something that we find abnormal, that it interrupts the normal course of our life. That's why he says in that verse, don't view the fiery trial as as if something strange were happening to you. 
So he's wanting to undermine this and say, no, don't think this is strange. Don't think that normal life is everything goes great for me. We live in a fallen world, and don't think that everything going great for me is normal life, and then suffering's an intrusion. Not at all. That's not what he communicates. He wants us to understand that we will have difficulty. And as the first Sunday of Advent, while I don't have an Advent illustration here, I do have a point that I've brought up numbers of times over the years, that we often live uh, our Christian lives just like sort of the Christmas season, just sort of like Elf on the Shelf, who is there spying on the kids all day long, and then at night flies up to tell Santa how they've done. So the idea is that I'm being watched 24-7, we are, not by an elf, by the Lord. So we are watched 24-7, and, uh, and then God does see our behavior. But we think, just like Elf on the Shelf and then Santa, that if we have done good, at least during this season of time, if we have done good, we will get good things. And there, there's no message that could be more opposed to the Christian message, which says that we do not merit good things, and uh, we cannot do enough good things to, like, earn God's favor. Uh, We have God's favor because He's gracious, and that the message is not ultimately that God brings good gifts to good little boys and girls. The message is that God gives good gifts to bad little boys and girls and bad men and women because there is no other kind. All of us have fallen. All of us have rebelled against his authority. And so we have the grace of God because he's gracious, not because we're good. We have the grace of God because we're the beloved, not because we've loved him enough to earn it or to deserve it. But whenever suffering comes in our lives and we're surprised by it, it just reveals our inner legalist. It just reviews, it just uh, uh, exposes, rather, it just exposes this idea that lives inside us that if I'm being good, I should have good things happening in my life. And if I'm being bad, well, understand bad things are happening. But if I'm being good by my standard of good, all should go well. He wants them not to be surprised by suffering, but to expect it, even when they follow the Lord. These people are suffering specifically because they follow the Lord. If they're not following the Lord, there's no pushback, and they're fine. They're suffering, at least in this way, because of their faith in Christ. He wants us to know that this is not something strange, but it comes upon us. What does he say here, verse 12? This fiery trial comes upon us to test us. Now, He introduced that idea of a fiery trial being a testing in chapter 1. If you have your device or your Bible, if you go back to chapter 1, this is the context of the fiery trial. Look at verse 6, 1, 6, and 7. Chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice that though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Sounds very similar, right? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? He's saying in that that, 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 that trials, the various trials that they're experiencing, all kinds of trials, this is broad, the various trials 
test the genuineness of our faith, just like fire tests gold or silver when it's being refined. That, that the fire burns out the impurities, that it tests the genuineness of our faith, and that it purifies our faith so that we, verse, one, uh, verse 7 in chapter 1, so that we can glorify God. We can bring glory to Him. So he's saying the trial you're experiencing is testing your genuineness, and we'll see when we come to the end of the chapter, and he talks about judgment coming to the house of God. This is what he has in mind, that trials are testing your faith to see if you're ge- the genuineness of your faith, to, to strengthen you so that you lean on Jesus Christ, so that your faith is matured, so that he preserves you and matures your faith through the difficulties. Strength comes through the resistance that they are facing, and that's true for all of us. So it makes all the difference to know that our trials are not strange, that they're not surprising. Some of you are in a fiery trial right now, and what is compounding and making the trial worse and is stealing the opportunity you have to encounter the Lord in this trial is that it's not just the trial you're facing, It's the viewpoint you're wrestling with that this is abnormal, that this shouldn't be happening, that normal life means this doesn't happen. But because you view this as an intrusion into normal life, you're finding yourself living with the question, why? So rather than walk through the trial, rather than engage God in the midst of the trial, rather than engage others to come around you and support you through prayer and what other help or counsel they could bring, Rather than doing that, you're, you're in this mental battle with, this shouldn't be happening. Why is this happening? And this passage frees us to let the why question go, because nothing strange is happening to us. Nothing surprising is happening to us in the fiery trial. What's happening to us is that God, we are his beloved, he is with us, and he is purifying us and showing and demonstrating the genuineness of our faith, if we are indeed genuine Christians. God wants to work through it, but as long as it is this shocking surprise, we miss out on what the Lord wants to do. Number two, we are to rejoice in suffering. Verse 13, expect it and rejoice. Verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, he's not saying that suffering itself is a joy. He's not saying enjoy people persecuting you. Isn't it great to be very sick? Aren't you celebrating the terminal diagnosis that you just received? Wow, what a joy to look and see there's no money in the bank and the creditors are calling. He's not saying that. He's saying, he, he qualifies the suffering. He says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. He's saying, if you suffer as a believer, there's something to be joyful about because the reason for the suffering is your connection to Christ. He goes on to say that if you're insulted for your faith, you're blessed. You're blessed because the Spirit of Christ rests upon you. Think about their context, resistance from the faith, for your faith. He said, this is a, actually a blessing because the Spirit of Christ rests upon you. If you're excluded by some at work because of your beliefs, if, if you are slandered by your neighbor because of your faith, if you are looked down upon 
by certain family members because of your faith, if you're challenged or even mocked at school because of your faith, he says, this is a blessing. It's a blessing. Sometimes when we receive pushback or we suffer in any other way, our conclusion is that God is far from me. God has left me. But Peter tells these Christians, when you suffer, actually God's Spirit is upon you. This is what he says, rejoice uh, because the Spirit, verse 14, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What a beautiful picture. In the midst of your suffering, rejoice because don't assume that God is distant and has forgotten about you. He's actually resting on you is the language. That is the language of nearness, even intimacy, that God is resting upon me. Have you ever thought about that, that God is uniquely present with you in your suffering? The Bible says God is always with you. You cannot go away from him, and yet there are verses of the Bible that speak of God's unique presence, and here his unique presence is with you in your suffering. Rejoice because you are blessed to be his, that he has not left you. The spirit of glory and the spirit of God is resting on you. What a promise. You are not alone today. You may not see him. You may not feel him. You, you, may, you may have to grasp this with raw faith, but this is what the Scripture says. This is not me. This is the Scripture. He is resting upon you, verse 14. That's something to be thankful for. So we rejoice. Uh, we also rejoice because there's something to look forward to in our sufferings. Verse 13 above, he said, um, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice, so rejoice for this reason too, and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, this is probably a reference to uh, his apocalypse, his revealing, that kind of revealing, capital revealing with a, the big reveal with a capital R, that is his return. That's probably what's in view here. And he's saying here, be glad, you will be glad at the day of his revelation, at the day of his return. I assure you, whatever you're going through today, by God's grace, if you're able to have others come alongside you and support and comfort and help you, if you're able to cry out to God in prayer, if you're able to look to him even when you feel so weak, if you're able to just look to him even when you feel like giving up, if you're able to walk by his grace in his power, aware of him through your suffering, seeking to be faithful, I assure you, you will not be sorry on the day you follow him, you find him. In his return, you will be glad, the scripture says. You will be glad. He's saying, look forward. There's a day coming when it will not be like this, and you will have more joy than you can imagine when you see the Savior who sustained you for all these years and through everything you experienced. You will be glad. Rejoicing in persecution is so countercultural isn't it? It's, it's, it's just doesn't, it's just doesn't, it's counterintuitive. It just doesn't feel right. Why should I be rejoicing at the difficulty, particularly here with persecution? But that's a biblical idea. Think about Acts 16. Uh, Paul and Silas are arrested. They're thrown into jail. They're beaten with rods, the text says. They're thrown in a jail cell. And you may remember at midnight, what are they doing? They're not cursing God. They're not yelling. They're not angry. They're not pouting. It says that they pray and they sing hymns so that all the other prisoners could hear them singing hymns to God in the midst of their suffering. Then God does that amazing thing and 
breaks them out. Uh, there's a prison break, a uh, Holy Spirit prison break. But, uh, so that, that's a, it's a beautiful picture of how they celebrated being counted worthy to be identified with Jesus Christ as their Savior. There's a pastor from Romania named Richard Wormbrand, and uh, he was well-known. He wrote a book that was very uh, popular, uh, Tortured for Christ, I think it was called. But he, he uh, was imprisoned in, in, uh, under a communist regime in Romania in the 1960s and 70s, I think is mostly when he was in prison. I actually heard him speak. He came to our seminary and told his story. Uh, that was in the 1980s. Uh, but anyway, he experienced tremendous persecution because basically he stood up and said the gospel and uh, communism were not compatible, compatible and that he was going to pick the gospel, he was going to follow the Lord and proclaim the gospel even if it was disallowed and, and um, you know, illegal in their culture. Well, he was put in prison and uh, not only was he beaten many times over the years, but he was also put in solitary confinement for long periods of times and, uh, time. And he, he wrote that at times, uh, though he was so frail and so weak, that in solitary confinement, he would become overcome with such joy that he would get up and begin to dance in his cell. He said it was as if he was dancing with the angels. An incredible experience. You may think, well, I, I could never see myself in that role. I, I would say that. And yet the Holy Spirit uh, meets us in our suffering. And here's someone suffering for Christ in such a way that it rejoiced to the point of giving physical strength and exuberance to dance unto the Lord while being persecuted. God tells us there is actually a reason to rejoice in our suffering, that he is with us, that we will see him in glory and be glad. He also says don't be ashamed of suffering for Christ. There is no shame in suffering for the Lord at all. Verse 15, he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So what he's saying there is don't, uh, if you suffer, make sure it's for righteousness. Don't commit a crime and then say, well, I'm in prison suffering. The Lord's, you know, uh, you, the Lord's blessing me. And the, no, you committed a crime. You're getting just uh, just justice, just punishment in that situation. So he says, don't commit a crime. Don't react against your persecutors or against someone else in some kind of hateful or even illegal way. Don't do that. I will note, that's a very interesting list of sins. Um, murderer, thief, I mean, evildoer sounds really bad, right? He's an evildoer. That, that sounds pretty bad. Meddling? That means being a busybody, getting in other people's business fascination with the details of other people's lives and then sharing that and spreading that to be just meddling, sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong. I, I just want to just say this. That is a big warning to me. I want to meddle in things sometimes in my mind, even if I don't say it. That is a big say that God says in real life and digitally and on social media, avoid meddling with other people's stuff that doesn't involve you. And that shows up on the list with murder and thievery and evil doing. Just, just, that's just want to point that out. That is significant. So for them, he's saying, you follow Jesus, you be faithful in your community, in your neighborhood, and in your workplace, and don't be meddling in other people's stuff. You've got enough trouble following Jesus on your own. 
you need the Lord where you are. So that for it, it, whomever, whoever has ears to hear, uh, hear that, if that's you know, for you today. God tells us also uh, that, that we are ultimately to glorify God through our suffering. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. Well, here's the last idea. We're to expect suffering, we're to rejoice in suffering, and we are to understand suffering. Now, when I say that, understand at least what the Scripture tells us. Get a, get a new perspective, get a fresh perspective on what's being communicated, uh, as I did at the doctor's office, and that makes all the difference. Now, we can't understand the exact purpose for each individual suffering, typically. Sometimes there's a clear cause and effect, but usually that's not the case. See the book of Job. That's why the whole book of Job is written. The whole book of Job is written for people who say, uh, if you do these things, good things happen to you. If you're righteous, you will always have an externally blessed life. Your circumstances will always be good. The book of Job is written to turn that upside down and say, well, what about Job? Most righteous guy ever, and he suffered worse than anyone. That's why that book is written, to undermine that kind of idea. Um, So we can't always know why we suffer. But we can be certain that God is at work. Look what he says in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So he's saying, I'm bringing judgment to the church now. Now that sounds strange to us because the Bible says that we won't be judged as those who come under the wrath of God. Um, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Jesus endured the judgment that is due us when he absorbed our sins, uh, absorbed the wrath of God upon the cross. So we're not judged in the sense of um, righteous or unrighteous, you know, heaven or hell, that kind of thing. We're not, he's not talking about that kind of judgment. We're protected in Christ. But there's another kind of judgment. We've already read about it. It's in chapter 1, and it's under the word test in verse 12. The kind of judgment or assessment where God tests our faith, tests the genuineness of our faith, purifies our faith. In some sense, the trials are the work of God's testing judgment. Here's what happens in times of persecution or various other times of trials. Nominal Christians or artificial Christians, they turn away. They turn away from God. They turn away from their faith. That there is a sorting out. God is doing a sorting out right now. Now, we know that Jesus said that the ultimate sorting out will come at judgment, where he says, the wheat and the tare grow together, and he will separate them at judgment. A tear is like a weed. And what he's saying to people who are in a farming community is he's saying to them, hey, when you get ready to harvest your wheat, there's also some weeds in there. You've got to separate out the weeds. He says, I will do that on the last day. The, the implication is that wheat and weeds will grow together. Uh, believers and unbelievers will be part of the church and will identify with Jesus Christ. On the last day, he'll separate them. But what this passage is saying, let judgment begin now in the house of the Lord, is that the sifting is already happening. It's already happening. Those who are with Christ will remain. Those who are not, well, when things get turned up, they disappear. And isn't this what we see all over the Bible? We see this in the ministry of Jesus. As long as Jesus is feeding the 5,000, 
as long as Jesus is casting demons out of people's kids so that they're sane and healthy, as long as Jesus is healing blind people, as long as Jesus is showing up at a funeral and raising a young boy from the dead uh, and so that he returns him and restores him to his family, as long as Jesus is doing that, the crowds are big. But when Jesus begins to say, to follow me, you have to die to yourself. You've got to take up your cross, this obscene, this obscene image of execution, which was not even spoken about in polite company, you've got to carry a cross for your life. When he starts talking about the cost, you'll notice in the Gospels, the crowds get smaller and smaller. At one point, he says, the disciples, are you going to leave too? Like, that's all that's left. The crowds get smaller and smaller when the promise of suffering comes along. And that's what he's, I think, ultimately talking about, that nominal judgment begins at the house of the Lord, and fiery trials test us, that's the same passage, because they are a sort of judgment. And I think this is really, really uh, relevant for us now. I'm, I'm not interpreting judgment about on any individual, who's, in, who's a real Christian, who's not. Uh, somebody this, this week was asking me, do you think this person's a Christian or that person? I just said, you know what? The Lord will have to sort that out. I don't know. He's asking about famous people. Do you think that person? Ever, I, I don't know. I, I know they say this. The Lord will sort that out. That's not for me to do. So I'm not doing that right now. But I do want to just think about this, that when COVID hit our country, um, church attendance just evaporated. Now, obviously, there was limitations to who could gather where and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's certainly part of it. But the part I want to address is many people in surveys, nobody's told this to my face, but what I've read in surveys, so I assume it's true, is that many people said after COVID, regular church attenders who are Christians said, I'm not ever returning to that again. There were people that just basically, when the upheaval came, ultimately began a habit of not interacting with God or his people, I suppose, and then ultimately said, that's permanent for me. I'm out. And so I want to say that lower church attendance in the U.S. is not necessarily a bad thing. It may reflect the sort of purging or purifying of nominal believers, because as long as the, the, uh, the return the benefit is greater than the sacrifice, then I'm in. But if the sacrifice gets too great, the, the false Christian, the tear, the weed, will be sometimes sorted out and will fall away. And I think you see that in cultures where there's high persecution, not like here, but other places where there's strong persecution, that why would you be an unbeliever and show up and identify with this small group of people if it might cost you to be martyred? If you don't even believe, you just check out. And what happens is sometimes even in less persecution or less difficulty or less trials, people can say, this is too much. If that's what God's like, I'm out. Now, some people do that temporarily. They temporarily say, I'm, I've had it with God. I'm mad with God. You can read Psalms where people are saying very strong things to God. I'm saying something very strong to God. I'm out. But what happens is later in life, something happens and they indeed do come back. It was a bad moment, a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, a bad season, but they return to the Lord. But there are those who aren't genuine followers who, First John says, they went out from us because they never were really of us. They were wheat that gathered with the tear while things were good, and when things went bad, they were sorted. 
So he's understanding that judgment, that suffering has this dual purpose, not judgment. Suffering has this dual purpose. Judgment, God purging the church of false believers, and at the same time purifying true believers so that they grow in their experience of God, the Spirit of God, their relationship with God. So we don't need to be assessing who's being a false believer and judged. Leave that with the Lord. But we do need to acknowledge that judgment began 2,000 years ago when he wrote this in the house of the Lord and is always there where there's persecution. It's a sorting. Or where there's difficulty of any kind, there's a sorting out that takes place. He also gives a warning to unbelievers. He says in verse 18, if the righteous are scarcely saved, that means through difficulty. It doesn't mean like, oh, God barely saved that guy. It means that through difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? So he's saying, if you think the suffering of these Christians who are being marginalized is bad and in a decade or maybe less will start dying for their faith, if you think that's bad, wait till the unbeliever stands before Jesus Christ. It'll be worse than anything imagined in human suffering. So he's saying, it's a warning to say, look, hey, Christians may be resisted. It may be hard to be a Christian in many cultures. Not really hard here, but it may be getting, it's getting more difficult. It's hard for some people. It may be getting more difficult. And so in that case, just realize it's way worse to be someone who doesn't have faith in Christ. And that's where there's a warning. So come to Christ. If you don't know him, uh, come and trust him, rely on upon him. Give your life to him. So don't be surprised by suffering. Rejoice in suffering. Understand the nature of suffering that is purifying, refining, uh, but it's also uh, judgment for the unbeliever, a false believer. Uh, and that pa- the passage concludes with an application. So what do suffering believers do? Well, this is a beautiful verse. Verse 19, it's sort of a theme of the whole book. How do you respond? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we entrust our souls to the Lord, and we do good. That's how we live. Uh, We don't escape the world. We don't run away from the world. We don't hide out and seek to protect ourselves. We go full bore into the world. We don't act like the world. We don't embrace the same mindset and do all the same stuff. But we're fully immersed in the culture around us, in our lives, our jobs, our friendships, whatever we do. Um, And yet we do good the whole time. We don't do bad, but we do good. I'm going to take these out of order. Do good, that's the second one. But throughout the book, he's been calling them to do good. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Don't speak in ways that tear people down. Lift them up. Verse 2.12, To keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse uh, 13 of chapter 2, Be subject to every human institution. So unless a human authority tells you to disobey Jesus, you must obey the human authority, unless they're calling you to disobey God. Uh, Verse 9, chapter 3, 9, uh, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called. No matter what people say to us, we must be a blessing and use our words as a blessing in return. Always make, uh, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect, 315. So no matter what anybody does to you, be ready to explain who Jesus is, why you follow him, but respect them. Communicate with gentleness, not self-righteousness. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, chapter 4, verse 8. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, chapter 4, verse 9. So we're to live this life among others. Suffering doesn't mean us to serve, cause us to serve Jesus less or hide out. It causes us to run to the battle 
and, and seek to be faithful to live for him. And then also to entrust ourselves, our souls, to a faithful creator. You see that in verse 19? Let those who suffer entrust your souls to a faithful creator. The word entrust is absolutely fascinating to me. Um, it, you notice it doesn't say trust. It doesn't say trust God. The Bible says that everywhere. So that's a good thing. But it says entrust yourself to God. Entrust your soul. This word entrust was used um, to describe leaving something valuable with someone for safekeeping. Uh, if you think about it, in this day, it was very different than today. They didn't have banks. Uh, they didn't have safety deposit boxes. They didn't have homes that could lock with alarms uh, or cameras. They didn't have any of that. So if you were going to leave, if you were going to travel, and you had something valuable, some money, maybe some jewelry, a keepsake, an heirloom in your family, you had something valuable, it's very unwise just to dig a hole in your tent or your little house and store it there. Uh, what you did was you found someone trustworthy and you left it with them. I important, trustworthy. You didn't want to return from your trip and the person says, oh, you left all your money with me. Ah, well, we kind of had a birthday party. Sorry, uh, spent it. That's not trustworthy. You want to leave it with somebody who would keep it for safekeeping. And what he's saying here is that person that you would give something to valuable to hold on for you, that's your creator God. And you don't entrust just something, your money or some valuable. You entrust all of you, your soul, who you are. Entrust yourself to him is what it says, entrust yourself to God, their faithful creator. He's saying that God is so faithful that you can entrust yourself in the midst of suffering. You can cast your cares on him, it's going to say in the next chapter. You can cast yourself on him, and he is eminently trustworthy. Uh, you, you, are to, uh, you, you are to, all of your questions entrust to him. All of the unexplained mysteries, entrust to him. All of the injustice that's happening to you, entrust to him. When it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't make sense, entrust it to him. When you don't know why that happened to that person, entrust it to him. Entrust everything about us, our safety, our security, our hopes, our longings. Entrust everything to him because he is eminently trustworthy. He will protect you and care for you and see you to the end. And when you see him, you will be glad. You will experience rejoicing you can't even imagine. That's what the text promises us. So that's how we are to respond. You know, we're going to close today with communion. And one of the things about communion is that it is a picture of the most trustworthy being imaginable. Why? Because Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed for us, the innocent dying for the guilty. He is trustworthy. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.